Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Past, the podcast about those who would never rule. I'm Veronica Fortune and this week's episode is The War of Breton Succession. Welcome back. Thank you for being so understanding of me taking a holiday. I'm a big advocate of taking a break, especially around the holidays. Plus, you all got that cheeky Christmas episode. I think we all probably work too much, especially if one looks at wage gap to productivity measurements. I hope you all had a great break as well. If you've come from the History of England podcast or Queen's podcast, welcome. I feel I've been really lucky making some great podcasting connections and friends over the last year. And I'm so grateful for the support I've received from these more experienced podcasters. If you haven't checked them out, please do. With the new year comes a few changes. For me, there's a big one. My oldest child is starting school. Yes, she's entering preschool this week. This is a huge change for us, but I'm very excited. With this, I may need to reevaluate my posting schedule once I finish this current not so mini series. There are two parts to this. First, I really love making these shows, but research, recording, editing, and writing take a lot of time, time that I could be working and am not. Second, purchasing my books, my university library membership, and journal articles plus hosting fees are starting to add up. So to continue on a close to weekly release schedule, I'll need to start funding this a bit. My patrons are wonderful and help, so if you're interested, please come join us. I've decided to keep all special episodes patron only, so if you want to hear my episodes about Edward III and Charles of Navarre, that will be the only place to find them. I'll be adding Henry V and Joan of Arc in the coming weeks. My goal is to continue a near-weekly posting schedule, and any support will help with this, so thank you in advance. Now, I do have some good news. I will be releasing a short 10-minute episode once a fortnight or so, so more episodes for you. These will be called This Too Shall Past. Thank you, patron David, for the name suggestion. You may have noticed this as the subtitle to the Christmas special episode. This new series will show up as the 100th season, but of course it is not the 100th season of past. That is for future us. These will be short episodes, less than 10 minutes long, that will cover a single topic. Basically all the little random things I research as part of episodes. Things like wardships, consanguinity, clothing, titles of nobility, 
geographical locations, great marches, really anything that isn't a person or a very big subject. I'm keeping these short because I'll be continuing the main podcast and want to make sure my focus is there. These are really just a supplement and completely random in topic. I hope you'll enjoy these and I'm open to suggestions. In addition, I'll be recording shorts of these that will be going up on YouTube and Instagram. I won't be announcing my sources in the episode, but I'll include them in the episode notes. I hope you'll take a look at those. Patrons will get these episodes on Monday with the regular weekly episode. Everyone else will get them on Wednesday. If there's enough interest in the special episodes, I may be persuaded to make some for the previous two miniseries. Let me know if there are any subjects that you'd love to hear about. With that out of the way, let's get on to today's actual episode, The War of Breton Succession. I'm sure a few of you are wondering why I'd give The War of Breton Succession its own episode. It's not a person, and it's not a distinct subject. Well, the honest truth is, I'm fascinated by two facets of it. Hypocrisy and proxy wars. Hypocrisy is something we all suffer from. Yes, even me, of course. But my hypocrisy doesn't lead to wars. At least I don't think it does. I'm, I'm not that powerful, guys. The hypocrisy of kings, though, can and does lead to war. Or at least can influence wars to continue. Proxy wars are something that I find interesting in many ways. Using others to injure your opponent while keeping your hands mostly clean. I know I'm not one to talk about battles, but the politics and casus belli that leaders use to justify wars is something I could spend at least 20 to 45 minutes on. This war, unlike the Hundred Years' War, doesn't have a surfeit of cool battles. Instead, it starts with a bang, relaxes for a while, before finishing in surprising fashion, actually. My main source for this episode is a primary source, the True Chronicles of John LaBelle. Of course, I spent some time reading the Encyclopedia Britannica, but getting to use a translated version of a primary source is always fun. I actually read a lot more of the Chronicle than just the bits focusing on Brittany. It's interesting to see the flourish chroniclers added to their stories. It does convince me to be very aware of finding multiple sources for events, because just like today, people had biases. So, who knows where Brittany is? I do, but I researched this episode. If you look at a map of France, it's an almost square country. The upper left corner, though, the northwest, the Amorican Peninsula, that juts out into the Atlantic a bit, that's basically Brittany. I'll give you a quick, incomplete history of Brittany, just for a better idea of the area I'll be discussing. This is nowhere near exhaustive. The area has been inhabited by people since at least 10,000 BCE. The Romans were particularly violent towards those living on the Amorican Peninsula, mainly due to the uprisings by those inhabitants. These inhabitants, though, weren't Bretons, but the Roman response depopulated the area. This meant that as Rome withdrew from its more remote outposts, the area was emptier than most. The first Bretons began arriving in larger numbers in the late 300 CE. These were migrants from England. They were either fleeing invading barbarians or just people moving for a better life. 
Unlike the earlier inhabitants who spoke a Gaelic language or possibly Latin, these spoke a Celtic language related to Cornish, the Breton language. Until the 12th century, the elites in the Breton area spoke this language and the common people continued to speak it for even longer. The Bretons were their own kingdom from 851 until 939, when Viking invasions led it to become a duchy within the Kingdom of France. Even though it was part of France, it still had a bit of an independent streak. During the rule of Henry II of England, his third son, Geoffrey Plantagenet, rejected his father's attempts to add Brittany to the Angevin Empire. Geoffrey was the Duke of Brittany, Jure Uxoris, through his marriage to Constance of Brittany. Yes, I promise to do the early Plantagenet soon. From the death of Arthur of Brittany, Geoffrey's son, killed on the orders of his uncle, King John, in 1203, the duchy had been ruled by the descendants of his maternal half-sister, Alex. Alex's mother, Constance, had married Guy Toise after Geoffrey Plantagenet's death. She would have three daughters with him, including Alex. Due to King John's decision to have his nephew murdered, he lost any chance of bringing Brittany into the English sphere of influence in his lifetime. Go King John making bad decisions. Instead, Philip Auguste, the King of France, was able to control events. Alex, who was only 13 when she became Duchess, was married to Peter Moclerc, a cousin of the French king. Their son, John I, would inherit Brittany in 1221 at the age of either three or four. This John's son, also John, would inherit as John II. Everything was going well in Brittany. It was maintaining its semi-independence, ruling as well as can be expected for the time, and enjoying trade with France and England. There was occasional manipulation or attempted manipulation from its larger neighbors, but overall it was doing okay until it wasn't. John II's son, Arthur, had three surviving sons with his first wife, and after her death, remarried, and had one further surviving son and four surviving daughters. So everything should be good, right? Plenty of sons is usually an okay thing. Wrong. For unknown reasons, Arthur's oldest son, the future John III of Brittany, hated his father's second marriage. He actually tried to have this marriage annulled after his father's death and to have his younger siblings declared bastards. Yeah, talk about hard feelings in a blended family. Now, his father's second wife, and do pardon my phrasing, wasn't some unworthy trollop. She was actually Yolanda of Drew, Dowager Queen of Scotland, and John's late mother's second cousin. There was no reason for her marriage to be questioned. Her first husband really was dead. His death actually caused a lot of political issues between Scotland and England. See, Edward I of England. I could imagine an argument about consanguinity. Marriage was seen as blending a family, both legally and spiritually, so Arthur's late wife's cousins were his cousins. Don't worry, you'll hear more about this soon. But I can find no evidence that John III tried that. Now, none of this should have mattered. John III was only 26 when he became Duke in 1312. His first wife had died, but his second wife was still young, and they could have expected to have children, right? Surprise, they didn't. But John III married again. 
Surely this third time would... Nope. Third time was not a charm. No children for John III. You'll remember, though, that John III had two full brothers. But only one of his brothers, Guy, had a child, John III's niece, Joan, or Joanna of Pontevo. So, John's options were his hated half-brother or his niece. Brittany was sort of French, but they didn't follow Salic law, as Alex and her mother Constance showed. Both were duchesses in their own right, and their husbands were Duke Jury Uxoris. However, if there was a male in a direct line, he would often be chosen over his niece or sister. Imagine in France, for example, if instead of Philip VI inheriting France when his cousin Charles V died, Joan II of Navarre had inherited France instead of just Navarre. But John III had spent most of his time as Duke trying to prevent his younger half-brother, John of Montford, from inheriting anything. Trying to have your younger brother declared a bastard is pretty harsh. His niece Joanna was 21, married to Charles of Blois, a nephew of Philip VI of France. Joanna and Charles actually had at least one child at this point, a daughter, so John III would know that the duchy would remain in the family. He had even considered willing the duchy to Philip VI of France, but his nobles had convinced him not to. So with all of this, it would be very surprising when in 1340, he named his hated brother, John of Montfort, his heir. Maybe he hadn't liked sharing a name with his brother? That is a bit awkward. John III would die one year after reconciling with his brother in 1341 at the age of 55. Now, I hope this means you can see the main characters of this argument, because just like everything around the Hundred Years' War, this is a family disagreement. With the characters in mind, why did this war start? The previous duke had declared his heir, following the traditions of the duchy. There was no reason for a fight, let alone a 24-year fight to happen. This is where hypocrisy comes in. The French, especially Philip VI, who could thank Salic Law for all he had, supported Joanna. And the English, where Edward III was claiming the throne of France through his mother, supported John of Montfort. So, each king supported the side that claimed power through the same means that his opponent in the Hundred Years' War claimed the French throne. Edward supporting the claim through Salic Law, Philip supporting the claim through a female line. Don't think hypocrisy stopped either of them. I doubt they gave it a second thought. But who did the Bretons support? The nobility, and we know they were the only ones who mattered then, supported Joanna. Her husband, Charles of Blois, was seemingly popular with the Breton nobility. John of Montfort, on the other hand, had less support in the duchy, but he acted quickly. Montfort's wife, Joanna of Flanders, supposedly encouraged her husband to make a move. He secured the city of Nott and then the duchy's treasury. Sounds a bit like the Normans, right? Spoilers! Both cities recognized him as their rightful duke. This war is nicknamed Guerre des Deux Gènes, the War of the Two Genes, after Joanna of Pontevo and Joanna of Flanders. But in reality, while one may have had the claim and the other may have encouraged her husband, it really was the War of Charles and John until it became the War of Charles and Joanna, plus John, with help from Philip and Edward. But this help 
from their larger neighbors didn't come at the start of the war. Remember, Brittany was a vassal of France. The Duke owed homage to Philip VI. Things stayed internal at first, but Edward III sent agents to Montfort, not apparently to act as military power, since England and France had a truce in 1341. But this attention from England was enough for Philip to take notice. Montfort fled to Paris to appeal to the king at the court of peers. In his mind, Montfort was the duke by both historical rights and being named so by his older half-brother. It would be expected that Philip would listen to the two sides and choose the one with the best claim. Instead, and probably not surprisingly, he threw Montfort in prison, accusing him of conspiring with the English. I mean, technically he did, but not against Philip? I'm not surprised by Philip's decision. Choosing his nephew over the friend of his enemy was probably a smart choice. Montford was able to escape prison and return to Brittany to mount a defense. And you'll hear more right after this. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. With French intervention, Montfort asked Edward for official help. Edward, bound by his truce, couldn't intervene. But Philip had decided to put his house in order, and his support was instrumental for Charles of Blois at the Battle of Châteauceau, also known as the Battle of Lumeau. Calling this a battle kind of ignores the facts. Montfort really didn't have an army at his disposal. His forces were spread out through various strong points, and he was only able to gather a small force. Charles, on the other hand, had at least 7,000 men, 5,000 of whom were French. It should have been the easiest victory for Charles. But Montfort, looking for additional troops, came upon Charles at a farmstead outside of Champtoiseau. Charles only had his bodyguard with him, and Montfort almost took the win. 
Charles got lucky and was able to fight off Montfort until his French troops arrived, at which point Montfort and his much smaller forces engaged in skirmishes with Charles's forces, before Montfort admitted the loss and rode for Nantes. The townspeople, who had welcomed him as their duke weeks earlier, turned on him, and he was forced to surrender. But not to Charles. He went back to Philip. It seems that this was easy. Charles of Blois wins. It's over. Why does this go on for 23 further years? Well, Montford's wife, Joanna of Flanders, and his son John were able to escape. And this is where Edward III finally comes in. Well, not actually Edward, but his support. Joanna of Flanders was besieged at Brest, but in August of 1342, Walter de Bowen, the grandfather-in-law of Thomas of Woodstock and Henry Bolingbroke, landed in Brittany. By the end of September, he was able to lift the siege. Philip VI was worried that Edward would land in Calais and pulled his forces out of Brittany. Instead, Edward landed in Brest. Surprise Pikachu faces, anyone? Before any battles could be fought, though, Edward and Philip reached a truce. But English forces were left in Brittany. Charles of Blois continued to fight because he wasn't bound by his liege lord's truce. Charles of Blois had been a very devout man throughout his life. Had he not been the nephew of the French king, it's likely he would have gone into the church. But his father had secular aims for his son. Throughout the War of Breton Succession, Charles showed that his piety would not prevent cruelty. He ordered multiple massacres of civilians at various points. While he was ordering the slaughter of civilians, he would confess his sins nightly, stick pebbles in his shoe, and wear a silis, a form of hair shirt, under his armor. Even with Philip VI's withdrawal, he was a successful military leader, and his eventual leadership of the duchy looked all but certain. He was besieging Enubon in 1342. John of Montfort, on the other hand, was struggling. He was imprisoned, his son was an infant, and his wife couldn't lead an army. She was a woman, after all, right? Turns out, she actually could. When she left for England to attempt to gain further support, her ships were attacked by French allies. Wielding a form of a poleaxe, she literally fought off troops that attempted to board her ship. She earned herself the sobriquet, La Flamme, the Flame. They didn't make it to England, instead landing in Vaughan, in Brittany, taking that city before besieging Rain, and then trying to break Charles's siege of Enninbon. Montford was released in 1343. Part of his release required him not to leave his properties, so he couldn't fight his battles. But the English forces his wife had secured were able to keep fighting on his behalf. He would actually be imprisoned once more, only to be released a second time. Edward's forces would return with Montford in 1345, but this would be the end of Montford's fight. He would die during the siege of Camper on the 26th of September, 1345. His son John would inherit his claim. Joanna would keep Edward's support and continue the fight for her son's claim. Sadly, while her forces and Edward's would keep fighting, Joanna would not be directly involved. Sometime after 1345, she would be confined, comfortably, and befitting her station in England. 
Edward used the claim that she had suffered from a mental collapse, but this appears unlikely. The more likely argument was that Edward wanted to use his power in Brittany to help with his claims in France. It looked like Joanna of Pontevaux and Charles of Blois would become Duchess and Duke. Montford's son John wasn't even six, and John's mother was confined. But Edward was still willing to fight, mainly as part of the proxy war. He also wouldn't complain about another foothold on the continent. While Edward wasn't in Brittany fighting, his forces were, and the defeats he delivered to Philip removed French troops from assisting Charles in Brittany. And in 1347, Charles would completely eliminate his chances of ever truly being Duke. At the Battle of La Roche-Durenne, Charles was captured by Edward's forces. His wife and children avoided capture, but his ransom would be steep, and he would remain in English custody for nine years. His ransom was set at 700,000 florins. This was estimated in 1926 to be the equivalent of 9 million francs, or 7 million US dollars today. Just for reference, not long after this event, the King of France's ransom would be set between the equivalent of 4 million and 250 million francs. For a king. Charles was just a duke, and a contested one at that. He would also be required to surrender two of his sons, John and Guy, in his stead. He did get something more than his freedom out of paying part of his ransom, at least temporarily. The Treaty of Westminster, signed in March of 1353 between Edward III and Charles, recognized Charles as the Duke of Brittany. Oddly, this treaty also included a marriage between Charles' rival, the younger John, and Edward's daughter Mary, though this didn't take place until 1361. In 1353, Mary was only nine. Charles of Blois was able to return to France. This treaty should have led to peace, at least in Brittany. Warning, a lot of people named Charles in this paragraph. What prevented the treaty from succeeding was a wee bit of chaos in the form of Charles of Navarre. He decided to try to get the English and French to begin fighting again, because it suited his aims of retaining control of his various lands. He had the Constable of France, Charles de la Credo, assassinated. I mentioned this in an earlier episode, and patrons will learn more about Charles of Navarre soon. Due to his interjections, the treaty was basically tossed in the wastebasket. But Charles of Blois was already home at this point. When Charles of Blois returned to France, his first act was to go on pilgrimage in devotion to Saint Ivo of Kermartin, the patron saint of Brittany. Once his religious duties were complete, he began to rule Brittany. The younger John was still in England. His forces in Brittany did control a great deal of the country, but it was unlikely in 1353 that he would be able to do anything seeing as that he was 14. Everything goes well for Charles of Blois until 1362. In that year, Edward allowed the younger John to return to the duchy. Edward's daughter, who had been John's wife, had actually died. And part of Edward's decision to release his young former son-in-law was that John couldn't marry without Edward's permission. Because of the actions of Charles of Navarre, the younger John wasn't bound to respect Charles of Blois as his duke. He decided he wanted to press his late father's claim. The war resumed in 1363, and within a year, it was over. 
On the 29th of September, 1364, Charles of Blois was killed at the Battle of Array, and his forces were defeated. Without her husband and military power to fight for her, Joanna of Pontevaux gave up her fight. Joanna and her cousin John, now John IV of Brittany, signed the Treaty of Guéron on the 12th of April, 1365. This treaty declared John the Duke and his male and male line progeny as the heirs to the dukedom. Should he not have any male or male line heirs, the duchy would revert to Joanna's line. This clause was never tested because the Montfortis line renounced the clause in 1420, when John the fourth son, then John V, was kidnapped by his Pontevaux cousins. He declared the treaty had been broken by this act. Had John V not been kidnapped, the clause would have been called on in 1488, when John IV's grandson, Francis II, died, leaving his duchy to his only surviving child, Anne of Brittany. Shockingly, Joanna of Pontevaux's oldest son, John of Pontevaux, didn't challenge his cousin's claim and renounced his claims at multiple times throughout his life. He would be truly dead before the kidnapping of his cousin, so took no part in the mistake that would completely end his family's chance of ruling Brittany. So what happened to Brittany after the House of Montford took power? It would remain independent-ish until Anne of Brittany became the Duchess. She was considered a highly sought-after young woman in the marriage market due to holding such a wealthy area. When she was 13, she married the Holy Roman Emperor, but was forced to have the marriage annulled by the King of France at the time, Charles VIII. Charles VIII then married her, not even waiting for papal dispensation, which did eventually come. Anne apparently wasn't the most willing bride at first. Anne would retain Brittany if Charles died before her. If he died without male issue, though, she was required to marry his successor. This happened in 1398, after seven years of marriage. Anne was 21. Anne had given birth to at least six children, but none had survived past the age of three. Less than a year after Charles's death, Anne married his successor, Louis XII. The couple would have two surviving children, both girls. Their oldest daughter, Claude of France, became the Duchess of Brittany in 1514 when Anne died. In a final and successful attempt to bring Brittany into the French royal holding, Claude was married to her father's successor and their mutual cousin, Francis I. Through their son, Henry II, Brittany would become a holding of the French crown and would remain so until there was no longer a French crown. Prior to the French Revolution, more than 400 years after the time this miniseries is looking at, Brittany was a rather autonomous region. It wasn't until the 19th century that its language began to be replaced by French. Thankfully, linguistic repression has started to change in recent decades. While Breton is not a recognized language for government use in France, it is being taught in schools in Brittany again. As you may be able to tell, I'm a big fan of the continuation of minority languages, especially in their homeland. As part of this research for the episode, I listened to a few native speakers of the Breton language through various videos on YouTube. I highly recommend doing this if you're so inclined. My listeners who have been exposed to Celtic languages will hear the similarity. 
I played some for my Cornish uncle-in-law over Christmas. He immediately called out the French accent that both speakers had. It was very sweet, actually. Thank you again for listening. Getting to discuss a conflict in its full history has been good. I'll be back to focusing on people next week with the Dauphins, who didn't succeed Charles VI. To all my new listeners, welcome, and thank you for joining us. I would also like to welcome my newest patron, Kim. I'm loving the growing community on Patreon, and I really hope to see more of you there. Also remember to get your questions into me ASAP. I'm still planning a Q&A for the end of this not-so-mini series. Thank you for listening to Past. I can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at PastPod. That's P-A-S-S-E-D-P-O-D. Please feel free to email me at pastpod at gmail.com. I have a Patreon that can be found at patreon.com forward slash pastpod. <laughs>